Hello and welcome to the June edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and coming up on this program. I'm John Kay and I'll find out why Chai Cancer Care are expressing their concern to the community about the drop in the number of new patients they've seen since the coronavirus outbreak. I'm Clive Roslin, and I'll be speaking to Neil Marcus, who's the head of production at the 10 to 4 Productions. He'll be telling me about his Musicals Uncovered series, which you'll be presenting online for JW3. I'm Kate Fulton, and I'll be speaking to Victoria Sturman from Resource. She'll be telling me about the ways in which they're helping the community back into employment, despite the disruption caused by COVID-19. I'm Tony Honigberg, and I'll be speaking to Naftali Arden and his mum Tanya about a bar mitzvah surprise that would make any Friends fan rather jealous. And as if all of that isn't enough, our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London, Mazorty Synagogue. But before all that, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. Deaths amongst Jewish people in the UK from coronavirus has gone up to 478. The figure, which was collated by the Board of Deputies, using data gathered from seven of the largest denominational burial boards, was up from 458. A spokesman for the board said in a statement, We wish their families a long life and pray that the memory of their loved ones should be for a blessing. A female lawyer who works for the government joined an al Day rally where a call was made by a banned pro-Iran cleric for Jews to be forcibly removed from Israel. Najis Khan has apparently worked for the Government Legal Department, or GLD, for more than three years, where she's given advice to the Attorney General's office on a range of issues that fall within the public interest. Miss Khan read out one of her own poems, with verses that branded Israel an illegal enterprise at the Al-Huts rally, which had to go online because of COVID-19. David Collier, the campaigner against anti-Semitism, commented that nobody should associate with such a toxic event. An anti-Semitic banner saying, Welcome to the Zionist police state, was hung outside a house overlooking the disused Bancroft Road Jewish Cemetery in Tower Hamlets, which dates back to 1811. The Metropolitan Police said officers went to the property and removed the banner. The resident of the house was apparently not in. Wes Streeting, the Labour MP for Ilford North, tweeted a thank you to the police and Tower Hamlets Council for getting it taken down. 89 British Jews moved to Israel in the first four months of 2020. That's down from 146 in the same period last year. The 60% fall is attributed to the coronavirus pandemic. In January, prior to the lockdown, 32 people made Aliyah, which was an increase of five on 2019. Yigal Palmer, who is head of external relations at the Jewish Agency, said entry restrictions, general shutdown of government, lockdown regulations and lack of flights all contributed to the overall fall in numbers. And finally, a London Hazen has starred in a music video which was shot in his empty shul during lockdown about the longing for communal life to return. Avrami Freilich of Norris Lee Synagogue in Hampstead Garden suburb performed a version of Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof with new lyrics written by Malcolm Green, who attends the shul. The Hazen said if we can't come to shul, then the shul had to be brought to the community. Mr Green said Avrami's incredible voice and charisma made this a pleasure to write and film. And that's the news for now. Viv, thank you very much indeed. If you're a musical theatre fan, coming up, you don't want to miss what we're going to find out about what JW3 has in store for you for the month of June. But 
Before that... You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. With the overwhelming amount of coverage surrounding COVID-19, it's easy to forget that other medical conditions exist, but there are some that really can't be neglected. High Cancer Care have expressed their concern over the drop in the number of new patients they've seen since the outbreak of coronavirus. The charity has seen a drop of between 60 to 70% of new callers. Chai's chief executive is Lisa Steele. Lisa, did you expect this drop in new patients during this crisis? No, we had no idea that that was going to happen. But I think what's happened is that people are not going to their GPs in the way that they used to go to. And GPs are not seeing patients unless they really have to. There's a lot of telephone consultations So when people are noticing or having symptoms, they're not getting attended to. The government have said if people have got other problems with coronavirus aside, they should still be going to get them checked out. But you're actually saying in some ways, because the GP surgery is technically closed with their doors closed, people don't feel that they should necessarily ring up their GP because they can't understand really how they could examine them properly, I suppose. I think so. And I think people are also frightened of going to their GPs because they're frightened of getting COVID. So what would you say to people who may have symptoms that they're a little concerned about? How should they push aside their main concerns and ensure that they are seen? I think if people have any symptoms at all that they are concerned about, just in the way that they would have done before this pandemic, they should go to their GP. They should phone their GP. They should do a consultation on the phone. And if the GP feels that they need to be referred, they should push for that. So the GP can refer them to a specialist hospital, even though they wouldn't have physically examined them themselves? I'm not 100% sure on that because I'm not medical, but I know that there are COVID-free cancer hubs being set up all over England now to treat cancer patients. And so I think if people are concerned at all, then they, they must go to their GP. They shouldn't wait. How has this directly affected high? So this time last year, we were seeing 70% more new cancer diagnoses coming to high. So we've really noticed the difference in the number of new people, new clients coming to high with the cancer diagnosis. Are they coming to you and saying, look, we don't know what to do in this situation? Our existing clients are coming to us very concerned because all their treatments have stopped. The scans have stopped, the MRIs, the chemotherapy, some chemotherapies. And so they are very concerned about where they're at. And some new clients have phoned and said that they've noticed symptoms. But as we're not a medical organisation, we must say to them that they must go to their GP. You say your existing clients have got concerns because they've had appointments that may well have been cancelled when the crisis started. But is that still the case now or any of them getting those appointments they've been waiting so long for? I think very, very slowly things are coming back. And I think they're prioritising in terms of where people are in terms of their cancer journeys. 
of when they're getting scans and MRIs and follow-up treatments. So those customers that have already started the process and are using your support, are they still coming to you for, for guidance and advice? And presumably, if they are coming to you, you're, you're seeing them in a, in a different way. Yes, we're having even more people are coming to us now. There's been a big surge in our existing clients that are phoning up or that we're phoning them because of those concerns. How are you going about giving them advice now? Because they might perhaps normally have attended your centre in Hendon, but you know these days that's probably less likely. Yes, yeah, so we're not seeing anybody in any of our centres, but we are seeing people remotely. So we've got counselling, we do by Skype, by Zoom, by telephone, however what the preference is. And we are keeping in touch with our clients that even don't want counselling, just if they want to chat, our client service managers are keeping in touch with them just to touch base with them, because a lot of people are isolated and are shielding. So even when COVID is easing a little bit, for them, they're going to have to stay in a lot longer than than other people. How has that worked? Because although many people were perhaps reluctant to use Zoom or Skype or anything like that for the purposes of counselling, has it worked perhaps better than some people thought it might? Yeah, I think it's very surprising that it has worked a lot better than a lot of our clients have expected. And in fact, a lot of the counsellors are expected, but everybody's had to adapt to the situation. And I think that's really important that we adapt to our clients' needs in whichever way is possible. Even our child therapists, who really it's, it's much more difficult to connect to a child through that medium, but have managed to do that. Music therapy we do through Zoom as well, which is fantastic. And what is it that you can't do through, you know, that sort of system that you would like to be able to do and get back to? So we do a lot of complementary therapies that really help people for symptom management. You know, when they're going through chemotherapy or radiotherapy or when they have a lot of anxiety, the complementary therapies really help with that. And we're not able to do any of that because it's all hands on. So massage, reflexology, hot stones, Reiki, healing. There's so many of these therapies that we're not able to, acupuncture, that we're not able to do that are hands-on. And what about the organisation itself, High Cancer Care? Is there concern for your future? Because many charities, including our own JW3, have been struggling. Have you, have you been struggling too? Well, there is a concern because I think when COVID eases more and people are going to the GPs, I think we're going to see a surge in the number of people that are coming to high affected by cancer diagnosis. Remember, for every person who has a cancer diagnosis, they've got the rest of their family who also get support from high. And is this having an effect on your fundraising, the amount of money you're able to bring in? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We normally have a lot of celebrants, so people celebrating birthdays and anniversaries, and we're not having any of these at the moment. And also, you know, general donations. It's Fundraising is very difficult at the moment. We've had to cancel a lot of events 
And so there is concern about how we're going to manage with the increase in the future, increase in demand. And that might mean that we need to have more therapists and counsellors and how we're going to manage that. So might that mean that you could have to reduce your staff or your counsellors in the future? I think we might have to take a view on how we're going to go forward. We might have to limit the number of sessions that people are having, which we've never, ever done before. But that might need to be a way forward so that we can see everyone who's affected by a diagnosis. And we don't want to stop people coming to us. If people want more information about high services online or otherwise, where, where do they go to find that out? So they can either go to our website, we have a free phone helpline, which is 0808 808 4567, or they can phone our main line, which is being redirected, and it gets answered the whole time, and it's 0208 202 And they mustn't hesitate to call any concerns that they have for anyone who's affected by a cancer diagnosis in the community. And presumably they can go to your website for all that information. Absolutely. They can email us as well. And we'll get back to them. That number again is 0808 808 4567. Lisa Steele, Chief Executive of High Cancer Care, thank you very much for joining us on this edition of The Jewish Views. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Well, for many years, our community has been synonymous with the world of musical theatre, and the same can be said about our next guest. Neil Marcus is head of production at the theatrical production company 10 to 4, and he'll be hosting a series for JW3 this month called Musicals Uncovered. It will explore the history of the connection between our community and the musical stage. Neil joins me now. Neil, it's a subject which I absolutely love, and you've done so much for the musical theatre in this country. Can you tell us a bit about your background and interest in musical theatre, and why do you think it is that Jews have always had such a keen and vested interest in the industry? Well, when I was about 13, I saw a TV musical film called How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying about a young guy that wants to claw his way up the corporate ladder. And I absolutely loved it. And it was set at an advertising agency. And I thought, I either want to be in advertising or musical theatre. As it happens, I ended up doing both. I kind of had dual careers. But that, that's what started it. The Jewish influence on musical theatre is, is very much an American thing originally. And it all boils down to how the musical was created and what the different influences were. And, and Yiddish theatre and European music and Kletzmer music all had a huge impact on the original Broadway sound. Now, you're hosting a course for JW3, as I mentioned, called Musicals Uncovered. What can people expect from it? Well, really, it's a trip through the history of the American musical, the British musical, the influence of Jewish songwriting on art and culture. And it's interactive. It's on Zoom with people to ask questions and explore and enjoy and learn more about some of the great writers. It's fascinating, isn't it, that of of the American musical composers, there's only one, I think, who wasn't Jewish, and that was, of course, Cole Porter. Why did that happen? 
Well, I mean, I think that was the case until the 1960s. I think there's been quite a shift since then. But yes, as the sort of early great songwriting teams, that was true. And I think it's because in 1910, 25% of the population of New York was Jewish. And a lot of those people were actors, musicians, arrangers, orchestrators, actors, publishers. So there's a huge melting pot to draw from. And also there's something in the Jewish culture that likes to fit into the world it's in. So there are people who are able to hate the world around them. You know, the greatest Christmas song of all time, White Christmas, was written by a nice Jewish boy, Irving Berlin. And if you listen to shows like Motown by Henry Krieger, a Jewish guy rechanneling the Motown sound, or Libra and Stoller doing the same for souls, there's an ability to pastiche or mimic or pay homage to the music around them. How will it work at, the, at this age of lockdown in this country when no one can actually visit JW3 Centre? It, it's a Zoom class, and within it will be clips from artists and contemporaries of mine who will be talking about particular writers they've worked with or singing songs, and I'll be talking about the history. And because it's Zoom, I can bring people in and out with questions. So although it's not quite the same as being there live, hopefully there'll be a strong degree of interactivity. You won't feel strange in that situation, though, will you? I mean, it's, it's very different well, from what you do normally. It is, but it's a changing world, and I'll be able to see everybody's face. So, you know, what I'm finding more and more is that my work is becoming a Zoom-related experience. So as time goes on, it becomes more and more a, an acceptable way to work until things change again. Now, talking about the actual thing itself, I'm thinking about all those Jewish composers in America. Is there, is there a sound in the music that Irving Berlin wrote and that Richard Rogers wrote and all of them? Well, I think every single great writer has a signature. You know, if you listen carefully, you can begin to distinguish a Rich, Richard Rogers from a Kandra and Ebb from a Stephen Sondheim to a degree. But then again, the Broadway tradition is quite specific. So a lot of stuff purposefully sounds the same. And a lot of Jewish writers try to reconjure the lost world that they came from. So Cabaret looks at the Weimar Germany sound of Brest and Weil and Hollander, or Yentl, which is Michel Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman. They're recreating great Jewish music of yesteryear. That soaring clarinet in the opening of American in Paris by Gershwin is the klezmer music and the cantor at synagogue of his youth. So, you know, a lot of sounds do permeate. What's your own, if you have one, you must have, what's your favourite musical and also why is it your favourite? Well, it, it's an ever-changing feast. And I think still for me it's how to succeed, probably because it's the first musical that grabbed me. It was by Frank Lesser, who wrote Guys and Dolls. And for its time, although it's now dated and, and has to be seen in the period in which it was written, it's a very clever satire on business and commerce. The musicals I really like have strong books. You know, sometimes definition of what makes a great musical is the book, the book, the book. And people like Larry Gelbart and Mel Brooks and Abe Burroughs and Bert Schievler, these great writers that captured Jewish cadences, that's the kind of musicals I like. How did your interest in it become? How did it all start? I think at school, as a kid, I was in lots of musicals at school. And then at university, I started to direct. 
And although I read law, I think my passion was always for theatre. And I went into advertising to avoid doing law. And while I was in advertising, I set up this thing called the Advertising Industry Musical, which was a fundraiser for the NSPCC and was very effective. But it also gave me a chance to produce and direct. And from there, I did a show at a Jewish art festival and then became artistic director of the German Street Theatre in Piccadilly. And my career kind of started that way. It's an amazing career you've had, and it is fantastic. Tell me about the actual course at JW3. Where will people go for more information about it before it starts? So the JW3 website, jw3.org.uk, and if you go into the arts and culture section and put in the date, the 2nd of June, which is when the first one starts, and it's a series of four running throughout June, I think there's a discount if you book more than one. And, you know, I hope that people sign on and enjoy it. The series is called Musicals Uncovered. It runs throughout June at JW3, and we've been hearing about it from the man at the helm of it. Neil Marcus, thank you for speaking to me in this month's edition of The Jewish Views. My pleasure. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, this, this virus that I think, I think, you know, the one we're talking about has hit us all in so many different ways, if not the physical illness, then our employment, our work. At the moment, there are at least 2.1, last time I looked, 2.1 million people claiming unemployment benefit, which some say is going to rise to about 3 million people. Claims for universal credit and job seekers allowance and things have gone up 69%, 70% almost in one month, month of April. So this is the biggest monthly increase since records began. Now, usually when we are in the Jewish community and we're looking for a new job, we turn to the amazing counselling, advice, free service that is known to us all as resource. And I'm lucky enough to have the chief executive of resource with us today, Welcome, Victoria. Welcome back. You've been with us before. I want to say after that sort of rather bleak introduction regarding the job figures, is there any point really with people coming to resource? Is anyone recruiting? Well, thanks very much uh, for that lovely welcome, Kate. And absolutely there is. So there is such a strong misconception that there are no jobs out there anyway, and all recruitment is on hold currently. But it really is not the case organisations must keep moving forward. There was an initial period of, of panic and of confusion, but right now we're seeing a lot of companies hiring, particularly in the, the tech sector, companies like Amazon, Apple, Facebook, but not only the tech sector. We've had clients of ours get jobs in the last few weeks in property companies, in charities, in banks, in Lloyds of London. I'm seeing advertising agencies like Saatchi and Saatchi recruiting. So it is very different. The recruitment naturally is all online now via video conferencing uh, software, typically Zoom. But the, the jobs can be found through job sites, places like Indeed or, or LinkedIn is very good. But people coming to resource are very much helped to use their own network and be in contact with people about possible opportunities. So you've got you've got a person, it's actually really good news. I don't think many of us realise just how, how much recruiting there is going on. But you're sitting at home, you don't have a job, you've either been furloughed, probably you may feel with, uh, with redundancy on the horizon. 
what happens? You, what do we do? We make presumably can't come in anymore. So make an appointment or call. How does it? How's the actual process work? Looking for a job with resources help. Much like we worked in the past, except for it's all on Zoom. So anyone who would like some help with their job search would give us a call. Our number is as it was, and it's on our website: o two o eight three four six. 4,000, or they can send an email to our office and they will make an appointment to see one of our advisors. Now, once the appointment is made, they'll get a link to the Zoom meeting and the meeting will take place over Zoom. You don't need a computer, you can do it on your phone or your a, a tablet or iPad. The advisor will most probably recommend a series of webinars and, and workshops alongside the support the advisor gives, and these obviously right now, will take place on Zoom as well. Right. So your interviews, your, your one-to-one interviews will, will also be on Zoom. Have you got, I mean, it's, it's very different, these sort of interviews from when you're meeting somebody in person, you can kind of pick up on bits of body language and maybe just sort of take a seat, have a glass of water. What What's the difference with a Zoom interview? And how would you, do, do you give advice about these face-to-face online interviews? Yes, very much so. So they're not very different to -to face-to-face. And I think I and a lot of my colleagues have been surprised at how well we're managing to hold a meeting and build rapport over Zoom. Because obviously people, that's what the thing people worry about. You should be face-to-face to be able to read the signals and the cues and, and to build trust as well. After all, if you're talking to somebody about your job search, you know, you're often ending up with quite a, a sensitive conversation, often, you know, with quite a lot of personal details and down, you know, not in person on the phone like that, that could be difficult. But actually, we're finding Zoom works very well. It's a secure platform. We're not finding it very glitchy. The pictures are very clear. Most people now know how to use it because they're speaking to their their family and friends so so regularly. So people are reporting to us that it feels pretty much the same as being in an office with an advisor face to face. Right. I'm going to ask you, I'm going to put you on the spot now. What are your top tips for job search during COVID-19? I will give you a selection. So I think the first thing I would say is consider how you'd answer the question, what have you done during lockdown? I think that that's something that we all should be preparing to answer and to have a few suggestions or a few ideas of what we have done that that is is more than just chatting on Zoom with friends or taking part in in quizzes to impress a potential employer to our resourcefulness and creativity. I think now is also the time to develop new skills. I would really recommend taking advantage of the incredible amount of online learning that's available to improve your skills, maybe take up a new hobby, take part in a volunteering initiative online, but but really, you know, develop yourself now. These will all be invaluable for your CV, also for something to talk about at interview, and just shows that you're somebody who's adaptable and looking for the opportunities in things. I'd also recommend having conversations, actually, another word for networking, really. But we find that people right now are far more accessible, given that everyone is at home. And I'd recommend that you look up an ex-colleague or a former, some of your contacts and even arrange to have a virtual coffee with them, which could lead to a speculative application at their company or someone with somebody that they know. Do you find there are people who are just technically illiterate? How, how do we help those people? I, finding that the people who considered themselves to be technically illiterate are 
are doing far better than they thought they would actually. We at Resource have always offered one-to-one IT training with clients who need some help and we're still offering that over Zoom. So we're doing IT training lessons one-to-one and we share the screen so we can show a client what what it looks like on our screen and then they can copy along with us. So, But I think that there are people who would have said that they didn't have very good technical skills, that coming out of lockdown and looking moving into an office will actually realise that they and, and consider themselves really to be quite capable now. And so this will be a new string to their, their bow that they didn't have before. But in fact, that was going to be another of my suggestions, actually, that you embrace change and that you are seen to embrace change because it's unlikely, really, that the world of work is going to return to exactly how it was before the lockdown. So really, I think it's a good idea to consider asking how the, the role that you were doing could actually be adapted. And and really, you know, working from home has given a lot of us far, has actually been far better for a lot of us than we really thought it was. You know, I, I thought that I would find it very hard not seeing my colleagues every day for a, a chat about our clients and, and, and how we're working effectively. But actually, we found lots of ways of, of talking online and, and really feeling that, you know, we're, we're quite comfortable with how we're working. That's wonderful. So there are still a lot going on. There's a lot to, to be a lot of information to be mined from speaking to you guys at, at Resource. And I know there were going to be some workshops with JW3 that unfortunately have been postponed. Are they going to be online? Yes. Uh, The good news is that the workshop that we were doing with JW3 has been rescheduled and it's going to be on Tuesday, the 23rd of June in the morning from 10 till 12. Details will be on resources and JW3's website very soon. Well, that all sounds great. And if people want more information, where do they go? They can look at resources website and that is resource hyphen center that's c-e-n-t-r-e dot org also the information about our forthcoming employability skills workshop with jw3 will be on jw3's website with booking details shortly and the website is jw3.org.uk brilliant and uh, thank you very much victoria and um, keep well you're listening to the jewish views in association with jw3 During these times of coronavirus, many bar and bat mitzvah have been disrupted, but our next guest might say the disruption was worth it. Naftali Arden is thought to have celebrated the United Synagogue's first ever virtual bar mitzvah. Little did he know it would lead to him meeting one of the actors from his favourite TV show, Friends. Let's find out exactly how that happened by speaking to Naftali and his mum Tanya, who join me now. And I've got Tanya on the phone first. So, Tanya, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the programme and talk. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. (laughs) Firstly, can you tell me, how did The Late Late Show get to know about Naftali's Bar Mitzvah? Well, I I now think it was that a friend of mine, whose son, a friend of mine, Hayley, whose son you're on, is very good friends with Naftali, she knows or knows of Ben Winston, who happens to be the associate producer of The Late Late Show and is also something to do with a planned Friends reunion, but used to live, grew up, and now he lives in Los Angeles, grew up in, I think, the suburb or somewhere. He's 
Lord Robert Winston's son. And a lot of my friends seem to know about him and who he is. And she had tweeted him or sent him on Instagram the JC article because she thought he might find it interesting. And she didn't tell me she'd done that, just in case nothing came of it. <laughs> so she let the associate producer know. And I think because he's a big fan of Friends, it must have piqued his interest. Naftali, hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very well, thank you very much. This is really exciting. Firstly, tell me a bit about your bar mitzvah and what was supposed to happen and how did it actually happen? So I was going to have, I was going to Leyland Shul on Shabbat and then I was going to have a lunch with uh, all my family and a few of my friends. And then on the Sunday, I was going to have a big tea with uh, friends' themes, lots of things. We were going to have a, food, a football table and then like t- a table named after the friends and a sofa uh, with like uh, a photo shoot. You love friends, so yeah. I've heard. But how did your love of friends first start? Because the show finished a number of years ago, probably before you were born. Well, uh, one of my friends, Yaron, who we just mentioned before, he recommended it to me. And I thought, oh, well, it would be okay. And I started watching it. And I became absolutely obsessed with it. And how many times have you actually watched the series? Because there's over well, 200 episodes, isn't there? I said seven, but I'm not actually sure. It's many times. It could be more than that, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> and will you, you're, I assume you will continue watching them over and over yeah, again. Yeah, I've, I've still watched them, uh, loads of them every now and then. Can you quote anything from Friends? How you doing? <laughs> it's brilliant. Going on from this, tell me who it was from Friends that spoke to you. It was Courtney Cox. And was that really exciting? Yeah, I was amazed. Took you really by surprise, didn't it? Yeah. And I understand she also gave you a present. Yes, she bought me a football table. The one from Friends, that they use yeah. in Friends. It's called football, isn't it? Well, they, I think in America they call it football, and football. here we call it football. Yeah. I'm not actually sure. What can you tell me about Friends? You can relate to all the characters, and it's hilarious. It's just you. you been, I've just been watched, been watched it. What's your fa- who's your favourite character in Friends? Oh, it's obviously got to be Courtney's character, isn't it? Now Monica, but who <laughs> who was your favourite character before that? I'm not sure. They're all they're all very funny. I feel like Phoebe would be a very annoying friend, but they're all they're all very. Fu- I, I love them all. If you could be one character in Friends, who would you be? Probably Chandler. <laughs> quite funny I must tell you I haven't seen all 200 episodes but I have seen quite a number of friends over the years and the present she gave me was this what they call you say football and football has it arrived yet? No but I think it's arriving this week and when it does arrive are you going to get back in touch with Courtney and just to say thank you? Yeah I'm going to write a letter to her You've got all her details of how to get in touch with her? <laughs> well we'll figure something out how was it talking to James Corden? Uh, yeah, it was amazing. He's yeah. really funny. Hello, Tanya. He's very keen, isn't he? Yeah, oh <laughs> yes, yeah. The whole thing has been incredibly exciting for him. <laughs> and extremely confident. I, you know, I think when I was 13, I was, I was quite shy. <laughs> Although you he wouldn't be believe, quite articulate. <laughs> you, you wouldn't believe it now, but I was in yeah. those days. It's quite stressful organising a simcha anyway. Yeah. When did you realise that your plans were going to have to be changed? Oh, gosh. I mean, it was all really short notice because the weekend of his mitzvah was actually the weekend right before lockdown. So nobody was talking at all about social distancing. The weekend before his, all of the planned bar and bat mitzvahs went ahead. And in fact, we had two bat mitzvahs. It was after that, I think, maybe the Monday or Tuesday, we Mm. thought... It's just not safe. And I was desperate not that it was my husband who said, I don't think we should do it. And then ultimately said, I don't even think we should have a minion in the garden. And I was 
desperate to try and do something. I think it was about the Monday or Tuesday we decided to cancel it. And it was the same day or a day later that a very good friend of mine who's an honorary officer of the shul suggested we do something online. How, how did uh, your... You've got Alex Chapper there, haven't you, as your rabbi? Yes, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, our Who rabbi. is an absolutely... And I know, I know him also quite well. He's an absolutely superb chap and with a great sense of humour. Completely, yeah. How well, did... very, the, the online bit was just as funny as I think as it would have been in shul. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> he helped towards that as well, didn't he? Yes. Well, the I mean, when my friend said to me, we're thinking about, you know, would you like to do an online mitzvah? I sort of said, mm, yeah, all right. And I have to admit, I wasn't enthusiastic. I was still very upset that we weren't going to have a mitzvah, really upset at, had to ca- at having to cancel it, plus all the worries mm. of COVID. And then she and her husband, who's very technical, and the chair of the shul, Simon Mitchell, and the rabbi all sort of worked on the format together, how, you know, what he could potentially do and who was going to say what, when, and how it worked, what format it was going to be, and then presented it back to me. And I said, oh, yeah, that sounds good. We'll we'll do that. And then they sort of organized the whole thing because I had no creative ideas. And it was terrific. It was inspired and ended up being so much more meaningful than I'd anticipated it would be. How did Naftali do, given the unusual circumstances? He was very mature about it. He was a real stoic. He understood completely that it would have to be cancelled. When we suggested doing an online one, I'd have to say initially he was as ambivalent about it as I was, Mm. and then got quite into it. And when we decided, all right, well, let's wear the clothes we would have worn to shawl, and, you know, you'll you'll still get to do your Havdalah and you'll still get to make a slightly different speech and we'll make a speech. When he realised that, that, you know, it was going to be quite fun, he was much more enthused about it. And he knew that we, you know, we would plan to find another way to celebrate at some point and that it would be recognised at some point. And he was, he was very, he really was stoical about it. I was very impressed at how mature he was. Have you got any plans after the lockdown to celebrate? And what are your plans if you have? We're sort of, I mean, I'm trying not to make plans because I feel like we don't really know what the timescale of the evolving sure, situation would sure. be. But, I mean, my daughter's bat mitzvah, please God, will be in February. So our tentative plans are to have her bat mitzvah and Naftali may do something in the service of her bat mitzvah, either lane or maybe lead a service or do something. Yes. And then and, and we'll have a joint party. But I'm aware that I don't know what lockdown restrictions will be or restrictions for those over 60 or 70. And I obviously desperately want my parents and my parents-in-law to be able to celebrate and be a part of it. So my, our plans are tentative, let's put it like I, that. I do hope by February. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I really hope so. I'm not worried about being able to have a party by then, but I really want it to feel safe for my parents and my yes. in-laws to be there. That's the issue. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to me today. And I think it's just brilliant. I, I don't know where we would be without modern technology. Had this have happened 30 or 40 years ago, what we would have done. But because of modern technology, the whole thing has been brilliant. Um, I completely agree. But I'd also like to push forward the amazingly creative people who can spin a one, something wonderful yes. using this technology. You yes. know, we need those people behind it to be able to still connect with each other in this way. Yeah. So, you know, massive thanks to my friends who did all the organising and the rabbi and everyone like that for their creativity and their positivity about the whole thing. Well, muzzle tov from all of us here at Jewish Views. And thank, thank you, you both for telling me all about what sounded like a momentous way to celebrate. And <laughs> as you say, hopefully by next February, everything will be... Back to some sort of normality and you can celebrate properly from there onwards. 
Thank you. So, Your mouth in his ear. Absolutely. I hope so too. And I wish you all well. And thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to speak on your podcast. Thank you very much, Tanya. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this month it comes from Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London, Mazorti Synagogue. There's a beautiful teaching by the Rebbe of Slonim about the hidden light. This is the light of which God said, Vayahi or, and it was light, but God hid it to keep it away from wickedness in the world. But it is available through Torah and through the search for the divine in all things. The Rebbe of Slonim links this to the menorah whose light we should cause to ascend. And he says that menorah too was hidden when the temple was destroyed. Hidden, but it is not gone, nor is the hidden light. And our task is to make the flames of that hidden light ascend on the hidden menorah, which will then become apparent in the world through the good that we can do. It seems to me in these difficult days that that hidden light is there in our own spirits, which need to be nurtured. We need the sense of the beauty of nature and the connection with each other. But that spirit is also there in one another, in all human beings. I witness with horror what is happening in America and the racism there. And I affirm, want to affirm the dignity and the sacred light of God in every human being, irrespective of religion or colour. And that hidden light is also there in the wonder of nature to which so many of us have been so much more deeply attentive and thoughtfully aware. The singing of the birds, the beauty of a leaf, a small flower we might not have noticed. In all these things is the hidden divine light. And our task is to see that as part of the menorah of the sacred fabric of our world and to bring that flame, that fire out into its proper dignity, to be aware of it, to nurture it, to care for it, so that we see the world not as just stuff and material and as things, but as glowing in every aspect with the light and the sanctity of God's spirit. And in that way, we nurture ourselves and our souls. We care for each other and we care most important of all, perhaps for our world and for the world of nature, God's world. Thank you very much to Rabbi Jonathan Wittenberg of New North London Mazorti Synagogue for our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this episode of The Jewish Views. All that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much indeed to all of our guests. They were Lisa Steele of High Cancer Care, Neil Marcus, Victoria Sturman from Resource, and of course to Naftali Arden and his mum Tanya. We mustn't forget to thank our producer Sue Greenberg, who as ever has worked tirelessly putting this programme together. And thank you goes to you at home for listening. Don't forget, if you'd like to listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views, you can always go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3 and from all of the team from Kate Fulton, Clive Roslin, John Kay, Tony Honigberg and myself, Phil Dave. We hope that you will join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.